Father, our, you are the focus of our attention, the one who deserves our worship, and we have great gratitude to you and the people you've gifted in this church to serve us in so many different ways. Thank you, Lord, for the gift of worship. Thank you for the gift of music. Thank you for giving gifts to people who cultivate them so that we can experience you in a way that would otherwise be impossible through this, one of many good gifts that you've given us to make our heart and mind settled and happy with you. Give me grace, Lord, as I open your word. Give grace to those who listen. Begin with me, that we may all hear your voice and do exactly what you say. In Jesus' name, Crosspoint said, amen. amen. Good morning. How are you? need you to open your Bible in two different places. The first is Matthew 28. And then you can look a little further ahead in your New Testament in 1 Corinthians 16. Matthew 28 first, 1 Corinthians 16 in just a minute. If you don't have a Bible with you, uh, there should be one near you in the seats. Please feel free to use one. If you don't have one at home, please take it home with you as a gift to you. In Matthew 28, you'll notice we're at the very end of one of the Gospels that tell us the story of Jesus' life, and He is giving His first disciples their marching orders. They tell us precisely what they were to do, and 2,000 years later, what His new disciples, His disciples who are alive today, us, what we should be doing. There is a single imperative in this verse. English doesn't show that, but Greek definitely does. The imperative is to make disciples and all the other things, the going, the baptizing, and the teaching all hang off this central instruction to make disciples. That's what this church is about. That's what a pastor who's listening to Jesus dedicates his life to. That's what a disciple, whatever they do in life, who takes Jesus seriously, is in the process of doing, becoming like Him and helping others do the same. Matthew 28, verse 18 says, and Jesus came and said to them, this is after His crucifixion and resurrection, He's shown that every promise God ever made is true, that He has authority over life and death, and that's why it says, Matthew came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. What a massive statement. I have every authority, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. That's our instruction. Make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So what are we supposed to be doing? making disciples. That was really half-hearted. Good morning, everybody. I'm Bruce Garner, if we haven't met. <laughs> Kindly wake up, for goodness sakes. Folks, it's 11.09. You should be far more energetic than that. We are too. And if we're following Jesus, we are in the process of becoming disciples. And those disciples are to be baptized in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. In other words, all of 
of who God is, everything God is. The Father sends the Son. The Son dies for sin. The Holy Spirit regenerates and gives new life. And you may not have all the theological categories to explain all that or talk about that, but that's what happened when you trusted Jesus with your life. All of that happened at once. And Jesus says, go public in baptism with those disciples, baptize them in the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And then he says that disciples are to be continually what? They are to be continually teaching how many of the things that Jesus told us to do? All of them. In other words, there should not be a cafeteria Christian. It's not a Chinese restaurant where you say, I'll take one of these and one of those and don't give me that. Everything Jesus told his disciples is to be heard by disciples, is to be taught by disciples, and he gives us this reassuring promise, the last words in Matthew's gospel, as you do this, I will always be with you, because this is hard work. This confronts sin, this confronts fear and brokenness and abuse and addiction and terrible family dynamics. And everything that sin has wrecked is confronted in discipleship to Jesus. And that's why I'm teaching you on this topic. In a few weeks, we're going to return to the Gospel of Luke, and we'll be there for the majority of 2017. But today, I want to give focused attention to something that is seldom mentioned, that is one of the many things that Jesus taught us to do. That's why I want you to look over in 1 Corinthians 16. To orient you to the book, if the letter, if Paul's letter to the Corinthians is not very familiar to you, the Corinthian church in modern day Greece was a church that Paul dearly loved, but they also gave him all kinds of headaches and heartburn. They were a mess. In fact, if you'll hold 1 Corinthians 16 and look back to chapter 7. Paul says in chapter 7, verse 1, now concerning the matters about which you wrote. And that is a clue, and it's going to come up again and again from chapter 7 all the way to where we are in chapter 16. Paul is answering their questions. The first six chapters are things that Paul wants them to know, and he starts dealing with their troubles from the very first chapter. They're a divided church, they have favorite preachers. They look down on each other in view of those preferences. They're suing each other. One man apparently is sleeping with his stepmother. Exactly. That's precisely what Paul said. He said even pagans know better than this. And what was worse, they had that tremendous immorality in the church, and apparently they were excusing it and celebrating it, saying, isn't it great that we can do this because we're Christians? If that sounds odd to you, just hang on. Keep your eyes on Jesus because people will do all manner of wickedness in Jesus' name and celebrate their misunderstanding of God's grace. So they're suing each other. They're sexually immoral. Now, for good reason. The city of Corinth was so wicked that even in the ancient world, it was sort of the Vegas of its day. It was so notorious that the city name, Corinth, became a verb. And if you really went off the rails, they said you had Corinthianized. Tell you what kind of town it was. They had brought a lot of baggage, in other words, a lot of woundedness, a lot of deeply ingrained, sinful, fleshly 
selfish habits into their discipleship to Jesus. That's why Paul spends more than half the letter dealing with their questions, their problems, and their issues. And some of the most glorious things in Scripture are in 1 Corinthians. The famous love chapter of 1 Corinthians 13. The glorious beauty of the long chapter of chapter 15 that tells you of the resurrection of Jesus and corrects them because some were denying that there was resurrection for Christians. He's explaining to them the gospel, the good news, and if you're unfamiliar with God and you're trying to figure this out, and that's why you're coming to church, it's not my topic this morning, but in a way it's the topic every Sunday. In the first part of 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that Jesus died according to the Scriptures and was buried and rose again according to the Scriptures. That's the good news he had brought to the Corinthians. And they were in the process of figuring out everything that Jesus had taught them. And from that glorious height, he gives them what seemed like some very mundane instructions regarding giving. And it's just four verses. But it gives you the basics of Christian giving. Read them with me. 1 Corinthians 16, verse 1. Now concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Galatia is in modern-day Turkey, by the way. In other words, these, aren't, these things aren't exclusive to Corinth. These are being practiced by Christians everywhere. They are taking up a collection for the saints, whatever that means. More on that in a minute. But now he's telling them to do the exact same thing. Now, concerning the collection for the saints, as I directed the churches of Galatia, so you also are to do. Here's how. On the first day of every week... Each of you is to put something aside and store it up, as he may prosper, so that there will be no collecting when I come. And when I arrive, I will send those whom you accredit by letter to carry your gift to Jerusalem. If it seems advisable that I should go also, they will accompany me. All that makes sense to you? Hmm. What's going on? From the very first, from one of Paul's oldest letters in the very first century, Paul's telling a gathered Christian church how to give. The reason a lot of that isn't immediately apparent to you is you're reading somebody else's mail. You're reading a letter that Paul sent this ancient church. Who are the saints and why is Jerusalem mentioned? Apparently what had happened, if we read in a bigger context, The name of Jesus had done exactly what Jesus had warned it would do. It had split families right down the middle. And the first Christians in Jerusalem, walking away from the synagogue and the very fabric of Judaism and embracing Jesus as their Messiah, had been cast out of their families. It was costing people jobs. It was costing people friendships. It was costing people their families. The only social security system, the only support system in the ancient world was torn away from people who took Jesus at his word and trusted him as Messiah. And in a very short period of time, people all across Jerusalem were cast into poverty and being outside of their families had no other recourse of support or help. It still happens. When we were missionaries in Mexico, a young man was baptized and went home from church to discover that his family had packed up every one of his belongings and left them on the curb outside the family house. Done with him. 
dead as far as they're concerned. That's what was happening here. There was no other recourse. If the spiritual family didn't come to aid, these people were going to be in actual physical danger. So churches all across the Roman Empire, including Galatia, and I'll show you later, and another Roman province known as Macedonia, churches everywhere were giving part of the purpose of their offering was to give relief to the poor. As we read across the New Testament, churches, Christian churches, gave to all sorts of things. They gave to send out missionaries. They gave to support the elders and the pastors in their church. They gave to support defenseless widows who had no family to lean on. They gave to support other Christians who had been impoverished by persecution. And all of this flows out of a devotion to God. It's giving is a devotion. It is our natural response to God's grace. It's not coincidental that the height of the resurrection of Jesus, that great spiritual height in chapter 15, is followed immediately by something that seems very mundane. In those last two verses, verses 3 and 4, Paul's talking about people taking the offering and being accredited by letter. And if you want to, if it's advisable, I'll go with them. What's all that about? They're making a conscious effort to make sure that the money gets there. They're being transparent, in other words. They're being trustworthy. They can grab some, some guy off the street and say, here's a bunch of money, make sure it gets to Jerusalem. God is wise. He has thought these things through. But the heart of the matter is devotion. It's a disciple's heart to do what God says. It is the most natural thing in the Christian life to give. A generous Christian should always be a redundant statement, not a, not a contradiction. Let me show you. Acts 20, verse 35. Read this with me. This is Paul saying goodbye to the elders, the pastors at the church of Ephesus, and part of what he told them before he left them was this. Read the Bible with me. It says, in all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. So, what did Jesus say? It's more blessed to give than to receive. Let me ask you, you believe that? Much better response than the 9 a.m. crowd. Good job. 9 a.m. crowd, I don't know. I'm kidding. There's nothing in our culture that believes this. Our culture and your heart is wired to receive, not to give. And you know that's true. Go to any preschool class and ask to see the two-year-olds. Children instinctively from childhood, along with mom, dad, and ball, say, mine. It's not natural to share. It's actually something that God is growing His children out of, and this is a simple matter of, belief, of taking Jesus at His Word. Paul says, I've taught you and shown you in my own life that it's good to work hard, to help the weak, in other words, to have something to give and remember what Jesus taught us, that He Himself said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. Hebrews 13, verse 16. Let's read that. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. 
When you share from what you have, your heavenly Father is pleased. And this must not be a token thing, I happen to have this with me. It must be substantial. It must make a difference because Paul said this kind of sharing, or whoever wrote the letter of Hebrews rather, says this kind of giving is a sacrifice and your sacrificial sharing is pleasing to your Father. Your heavenly Father is trying to raise the same kind of kids you are, generous kids. No parent is content that their child is stingy. If you have more than one child, one of your chief efforts in life is to try to get those two to do what? Share. It's hard. They fight it. Why? Because it is not in the natural, sinful, selfish nature of man until it's transformed by the grace of God to be open-hearted and open-handed. You have to struggle with that. That's why Jesus spoke so often about it. Let me tell you, money is Jesus' second favorite topic. The only thing that Jesus spoke about more often than money was the kingdom of God. About half of his parables involve some illustration regarding treasure or money. Now, let me ask you, why do you think that is? Does God need the money? Let's think through it. He doesn't, does he? God's not poor. Is he a great fundraiser? There are great fundraisers everywhere. Some of them are Christians. Some of them are shady. I know you're looking at this haircut, and I'm reminding you of some scoundrel on TV, and you're thinking, this is concerning, that hairdo. I remember the first time I saw, I was watching a televangelist when I was a kid, and I thought, oh my goodness, we have the same haircut. (laughs) Don't let my haircut or anything else in my presentation, my choice of words and illustrations, distract you from this simple truth. Jesus spoke continuously about giving because He is trying to make wholehearted followers of Himself. He is trying to cultivate generous disciples. Your heavenly Father doesn't want stingy kids. That's why it says these sacrifices of sharing are pleasing to God. In 2 Corinthians chapter 8, Paul brings the topic up again to the Corinthian church because these first four verses in the first letter apparently were completely ignored. As so often happens, they were instructed to give and they kind of missed that part. So he wrote them a second letter, and he gave two whole chapters. I'll explain at least part of that as we go along in the next couple of weeks. From four verses, he expanded into two chapters to reassure them, to encourage them, to teach them, and this is what he said. Now, I want you to know, dear brothers and sisters, what God in His kindness has done through the churches in Macedonia. There's another Roman province. We've got the city of Corinth, we've got the area of Galatians, of of Galatia, and the province now of Macedonia. And God said, Paul says, God in his kindness has done something there. Here's what happened. They are being tested by many troubles, and they are very poor. But they are also filled with abundant joy, which is overflowed in rich generosity. For I can testify that they gave not only what they could afford, but far more, and they did it of their own free will. 
you look at that passage, Paul himself is amazed that people on the brink of poverty themselves pleaded with him, let us have a part in this giving as well. In other words, this is just normal Christian life. Listen to Jesus again in Luke chapter 6. Jesus says, judge not and you will not be judged. Condemn not and you will not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. And the next instruction has a promise with it. And he goes into depth. Look, give and it will be given to you. Good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over will be put into your lap for with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. Now look carefully at that last verse. That is how the Garner children handle taking out the trash. I say, hey man, can you help take the trash out? They walk over, look at an overflowing trash can and go, don't need to, there's still room. Anybody else have this dynamic at home? Like, dude, you are straining molecules. You're about to create an explosion that does harm to the galaxy here by pressing those things so closely together. That's the sort of thing that Jesus is working on here. Don't judge, and you won't be judged. Condemn not, you won't be condemned. Forgive, and you will be forgiven. Give, and it will be given to you. And he knows this is such a hard topic for disciples, he goes into depth. If you give, good measure, pressed down, shaken together, running over, will be put into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. In other words, God's scoop is bigger than yours. He has it in his power to move in the lives of other people who will respond to your God-directed generosity but to be generous towards you in return. All of this means that this is the normal Christian life. God tells us to give. God tells us he is pleased when we do. God works in the lives of people, even those who are desperately poor, to cultivate generosity in their hearts, and God will bless giving as well. All of that is the natural devotion of the disciple. And the reason Jesus is so emphatic about this and talks about it so often, and his first followers, the apostles, talk about it in such clear, practical terms, often with lavish promises from God, is they know how hard this is for the average disciple. None of this is natural to hardly anyone. It almost always has to be learned. That's devotion. But that's not all that Paul said. Look in 1 Corinthians 16, and you'll notice that there's a great deal of discipline that goes along with that devotion. His instructions are so simple, I understood them when I was a kid. Verse 2, on the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up as he may prosper so that there will be no collecting when I come. He's saying, don't wait until I get there and run around with a hat pressuring people. This should be part of your routine. And I'm going to be really, really practical here, and I'm going to talk a little bit about myself, and I apologize for that, but it's the only giving story I really know. I took this verse seriously, I was taught to do so. So when I got my first job in the second half of high school, I got a job teaching English at an 
in retrospect, a fairly shady organization in downtown Chihuahua, Mexico. I say shady because the guy only and always paid me in cash. Looking back as a grown man, I wonder what tax implications that had. He's a different kind of guy. He never gave me even an envelope with cash. He always made us come in and he would push the cash across the desk. Which now as a grown man, like power play, right? Here you go. Thank you, sir. Thank you. <laughs> in English, because he was an English teacher. Well, 500 pesos. It's about what I got paid. And I read this verse. And I noticed that there's never a percentage mentioned in the New Testament. But I also noticed that Jesus commended the Pharisees for tithing. And I also noticed that every time that Jesus spoke of the Old Testament law, he always set the law of love higher. He says, it is written, or you were told this, I tell you, do this. And it was always higher. So, with what little money I had, and I had a 1974 Chevy pickup that I eventually realized I was essentially working that job so that I could buy gas to get to that job. Anybody ever have a <laughs> job like that? I'm glad the truck had two tanks. One to get to work, the other to get back. But I'd take 500 pesos and with great fear, move that decimal back. Then I give 50. Then I thought about the missionaries. We'll give them 10. And I set it aside and stored it up in keeping with how God had prospered that week. The NIV translation says it like this. Each one of you should set aside a sum of money and keep in keeping with your income. And discipline kicked in. In other words, it was purposeful and it was planned. It was set aside as God gave me income from about the age of 16 because of the good example that I had from parents and from very basic, simple reading of Scripture. I mean, this is a hard passage to obey, but it's certainly not a hard passage to understand. I set it aside. And that meant that that was no longer mine. None of it ever had been. It was all given to me from God. I'm his money manager. I don't own anything. Everything I have, including the ability to live, the ability to speak two languages, a brain that works so that I can speak and teach somebody else the language I grew up with, all of that was a gift from him. So I don't own anything, and he has given this little measure of prosperity into my life. And he says to these Corinthians, in the same way that churches everywhere are doing, every one of you, when you are prospered, when you have income, set some of it aside. And if I could be very practical, nothing has meant more, bolstered my faith, given me more peace than learning and practicing this for the last 31 years. Aside from learning to hear from God in His Word through reading the Bible and speaking to God in prayer, this act of giving has made my life a wonderful adventure of faith. Because when you set that aside in keeping with your income and you give it with discipline, and you remember that just because Journey has a new album and it looks really good, You've set that, that's my high school self, you've set that aside for God. That's not for me anymore. And then you turn at 16 and in your 40s, 
And having done what God plainly said, when needs arise, you turn to your father and say, what will you do? It's the most spectacular thing ever. I won't tell you all that God has done, but He has done a lot. Many times He blessed me financially in ways that I did not expect and certainly did not deserve. I think it's the single greatest reason I was able to graduate from both college and seminary after 98 graduate units with no debt whatsoever. Other times He hasn't blessed with income. He's taught me contentment instead. He's taught me to not buy it. He's taught me to repair it instead of replace it. He's taught us as a family to do with less in some areas. But this simple instruction that flows out of simple obedience to Jesus to make your giving a planned, purposeful, consistent thing that is as scriptural and as Christian as it possibly comes One of the great confusions, I think, regarding giving in the Christian church is that too many Christians and too many pastors treat it as the pinnacle of the Christian experience, something that someday is reached by some Christians after a great deal of trial and trouble. Jesus and the apostles didn't look like that at all. They thought it was basic. Is it learned? Is it difficult? Absolutely. I've written checks with trembling But can I tell you something? To get all that pressure off your shoulders and into your heavenly Father's hands, who doesn't fundraise, who's not a huckster, who doesn't need anything in the world, is the most peaceful, faith-building thing you can possibly do aside from hearing God in His Word and speaking to Him in prayer. All of these things go together. God is discipling the whole person. He's teaching you to follow Him with your whole life. That's why Jesus said in the famous Sermon on the Mount, that you had to choose between two masters. He said you can't serve God and money. Why? Because money is a master that will call out to you everywhere in the world, but especially here in America. We have learned to trust money and its power so much to take care of us, to keep us safe, to make us happy, and we give money a power over us and make ourselves its servants. And money is a wonderful servant, but a terrible, terrible master. Jesus said, don't store it up on earth. It'll all be taken away from you. It's all in danger. Store it up in heaven instead. How do you do that? You do that by devoted, disciplined giving. Because see, here's how this equation works. If you understand the grace of the gospel and it leads you to be the kind of child that God is trying to raise, your devotion added to daily, weekly discipline yields discipleship. When I was in college, I was really, really literal about this verse. I got paid every other week, and I gave my offering one half at a time, because I thought it was really important to do it every Sunday. I've worked and lived long enough now that I've been paid weekly, twice a month, once a month. I don't think it's necessary to be strictly literal. What is important is to give God the first and the best part, to get it out of your hands before it wraps itself around your heart and teaches you to trust it. I sincerely pray that you'll hear your Father's voice in this. If there's anything in me that puts you off, that you'll look past it. Because this is straight out 
of Scripture. This is what God has for you because, church, Christian giving is not and never has been about raising money. It's always been about growing disciples. That's what God's after. He doesn't need your money. He wants your heart. In a world that teaches you to work harder so that you can have more, in a world that teaches you that you better look out for yourself or no one else will, in a world that teaches you that name brands and the right kind of car and the right kind of school and going on vacation to the right kind of places defines the success in life, your Heavenly Father knows better and wants better for you. We're not raising money. We're growing disciples. People who courageously, sometimes with great fear, take Jesus at His word and get started. Let's pray. Can I give you an opportunity to talk to God about this very topic? Listen, first, if you're not absolutely certain that Jesus is already your Lord and Savior, this message doesn't apply to you, not yet. What matters most in your case is that you would know that God loved you so much He sent His Son to die on an actual Roman cross, be put in an actual tomb, and He was raised on the third day as promised so that you could have eternal life, so that you could live forever. That is the starting point of eternal life. That's the beginning of following Jesus. If you haven't done that and you've been on the fence about it, I'll just tell you what the Bible says. Today is the day of salvation. Trust Him today and let us know on that card that you finally crossed the line of faith. Please, that matters most. That'll secure your spot in God's family. That'll add you to the roles of heaven. But if you're already following Jesus, as most of us here are, and this has been the, the last kind of frontier, this is an area where it's really hard for you to trust God. And more than giving to God, you're tipping Him. You're not giving from the abundance of what God prospered you with. You're doing it occasionally or spontaneously or if there is a special emphasis. Listen to Paul. On the first day of the week, each one of you set something aside in keeping with how you may prosper and give it. Week after week, month after month, paycheck after paycheck, it turns your life into a glorious adventure. God, you've blessed. All of this is yours, but this is the portion I'm giving back to you. Help me to trust you. I can't tell you what a difference it makes. Try him. Test him. He tells you so in his word. Try him out. See if your heavenly Father will fail you. Obey him and see what happens. Lord, I pray that for the disciples here that are gathered, you would speak to them about this topic and you would show each of us, beginning with me, our heart in this matter. I pray for those who are unemployed or underemployed, that you would prosper them and provide for them so that they may have something to share and give. I thank you for the probably the, the meaty part of the bell curve, the majority of us. We have, we're blessed. Make us conscientious and disciplined and thoughtful in our giving. Some have been blessed with a tremendous abundance. Move in every one of those situations and show every one of those disciples, if they know you already, what the next step is in trusting you. I pray especially, Lord, for the young. I pray that parents would teach this to their children and that the young, with their very first jobs, 
would trust you in the beginning, that they wouldn't wait for anything, for things to get better, for them to have enough, because that line just keeps moving, Lord. You know our hearts. This is why you've taught us to do this. Help us to have the simple faith of a child to take you at your word and actually do it. Bless as we do, encourage, give peace, give provision as we seek to hear and follow your word and receive this offering in the name of Jesus. Amen.